Hello, my name is Katherine Moore, social worker, mom, coffee lover, and founder of Social Workers Rise, where we inspire social workers to connect, expand their knowledge, and change more lives than they ever thought possible. I'm so excited you found my podcast. We will talk everything social work on every level from micro to macro. We will hear the stories of social workers who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. Hello, Amanda. Hi, Catherine. How are you? I'm doing great. Welcome to the Social Workers Rise podcast. I'm so excited to talk to you today. You have no idea. (laughs) Oh, that's really nice. I am honored and excited to join you. Well, thank you so much for accepting my invitation. I, I have to tell you, I have looked up to you ever since I got the TDC course. I took it for my California law and ethics, and then I also took it again for my California and passed both times, first try, and I had your voice in my head thinking about how to reason and how they're going to trip me up with the question, so thank you for for doing that. (laughs) It's so funny that you say that because, you know, people don't know what I look like a lot of the time, I mean, unless they look at the picture. But I have, I had, when I lived in LA, I had the experience of somebody in a store coming up to me and saying, you sound so familiar. And we were trying to figure out why they knew my voice. And then I said, are you a therapist? And they said, yeah. And I said, did you use therapist development center? And they said, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that was me, a man. And they're like, oh my God, that's what it's from. So yes, people do end up um, knowing me or feel me and certainly having me in their head, which I don't know if it's always a good thing for people, but I hope it is. <laughs> Yeah, I could imagine it's a it's might be a little awkward because even with me, I'm on Instagram and I, you know, have this podcast, people will just start talking to me and it feels very personal for them. Um, and for me, it's cool because I don't I already have that rapport built. So I wonder if it's, you know, kind of similar for you too, if you've ever had that experience. Oh yeah. I mean, well, it's funny, we get a lot of people write in their reviews that things like I'm their best friend or their kids know me now or, you know, <laughs> and, and it's kind of weird. I just worry about people sometimes. I'm like, oh, I, I mean, I can't respond to everybody, but I just want to say, well, you, you should work on that because I, I'm, that's just a recording. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly, I never did it to have any kind of celebrity status. And it is a little weird how people, um, you know, how people, I mean, I, I get it because I have helped people through a challenging um, part of their lives, but it is also part of the motivation when I moved up to Santa Barbara, because it, there was a little bit of that stuff happening in LA. Uh, and it's weird when people give you, um, I don't know, you know, you still want to be treated like a normal person. And so it's nice to just be up here and, and people up here, I don't talk about what I do. And, um, so nobody, you know, knows. And, and, and I feel like I want to be, careful with my influence. And I've always just been someone who has protected my privacy. I've never had been active on social media. I mean, Facebook always kind of freaked me out. And um, I officially quit it a few years back because I would only go on there when I was bored. And I can just say to anyone else out there that realizes that they feel bad after they go on Facebook or social media, just get off it. Because I realized I was went through a really hard time after my dad died and I was depressed and I was starting to feel better. And I was to go on Facebook and it just put me into this total spiral. I texted my therapist. I was like, oh my God, remember how I said I was feeling better? Well, I just went on Facebook and now I'm a crumpled person on the floor looking at all these other people's amazing lives. And it just shows it's like, you can have, you know, those, those situations where you, um, it's easy to, you know, to look up to people. It's easy to think that other people's lives are better than yours. And, um, certainly I want to say to you, it's nice that, I mean, it's, it's flattering, but I'm a person too, and I have my own struggles and my own challenges. And, um, and I'm, it's great to know that I've helped people pass, but I feel like I want to still be held, you know, at the same level as, as every other person out there, just dealing with the challenges of being a parent and working jobs that, you know, doing stuff and getting stuff done that you have to get done with and just dealing with, you know, COVID and 
old aging parents and parents that pass away and all these things that life just throws at you that everyone has to deal with. That's me too. So. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true, Amanda. And thank you for sharing that. Um, it is a struggle and, you know, specifically with social media, it's, it can be good and bad. Um, I'm on social media too much, full disclosure. Uh, but I know that for me, I know my boundaries. And when I start to notice that I'm thinking differently, or maybe I get a thought that really isn't like me, like, oh, what do they have that I don't? Or, you know, why can't, why can't I be as successful as them, right? Like trying to compare ourselves or why can't my life look as pretty as theirs? But like you said, it's, it's a highlight reel most often. And, um, and it is good that you, you know, that you talk to your therapist. And, and I know for me, when, when things happen, like after the, after the verdict happen and, and then, um, you know, just all of the, all of the bad news happening in the world, I knew that I couldn't be on social media that day because I couldn't see on repeat, you know, just awful images or people who are talking bad about other people. I just, I just couldn't do it. It doesn't mean that, you know, you don't care. It just means that you have those boundaries there for yourself. Absolutely. No, it's true. It's, um, I mean, for me, it's just, it's just uncharted territory, I think, psychologically for um, the implications at the individual level and the societal level of what it means to put things that are, you know, intended to be private or, in, or have, have a context, you know, like if you and I have a conversation and you share your reactions about the verdict or whatnot, like I can ask questions to you. If I, if there's something that rubs me the wrong way, I can get clarification. I'm showing up with my own experience. We can have a dialogue and that's just absent on social media. And it's, it's, you know, people are far more comfortable being vicious in ways that they would never, ever, 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 ever be in person. And, but psychologically we still get impacted as if we are in person and it actually even worse because it's something that's out there public and lasting where, you know, if you and I got in a debate and a discussion and I said nasty things to you, you would, you know, you'd be able to say, well, she was really angry. She was unhinged. Like she had this context. You don't know where I'm coming from when I'm on social media. And then the other thing is then it's lasting. It's like all these people get to see this horrible thing that are said about you. I mean, it's, I just completely avoid it because I, I feel like it's, um, like I said, it's uncharted territory. And I don't think there's anyone out there that could ever argue they felt like they should have been less private. You know, like um, I think having like really guarding your privacy um, and that includes the privacy of your own opinions on things because opinions change, you know, and you look at like Joe Biden and how or any, you know, any any elected official that you can look at their voting history. Voting history has always come up into play in election. And it's like, well, it's hard to look at those things out of context. You know, at, at, at this point in time, it's like, well, they had that stance on it back then, but maybe at that stance was really progressive at the time and we don't have that context. And I think the same thing is that's the danger in social media and certainly with kids and young adults or anyone that they put stuff out there. And like it said, there's there's serious, serious consequences that I think far outweigh any benefits that come from it. Um, mm -hmm. And it's just something that we don't talk about enough because it's just so easy to get excited about it and and, you know, it's, it's addicting to have the fall. I mean, those people up there in Silicon Valley absolutely know what they're doing. They have psychologists that they work, that work for them that are telling people how to get addicted to their platforms because the more, the more data they have and the more money they can make. So it's, it's, um, it's something that people should think about and talk about. And certainly that's part of, like I said, my motivation to move to Santa Barbara and be here and just be more private because it's, it's, it's something that I want to have um, a freedom to decide how much of myself is put out into the world. Mm. So, and certainly I didn't, you know, I, I mean, I knew, and I, we, I know you wanted to talk about me starting the company that wasn't, like I said, that's like kind of, it, I've never been motivated by money. I've never been motivated by like having some kind of celebrity status. It always fascinates me, like the kind of people that are in the, in the marketplace that kind of want to promote themselves, you know, as a name or like, you know, at the beginning with, you know, why didn't I name it Amanda Rowan seminars, you know, like Jerry Grossman seminars or these other groups that name it after them. It's like, well, I never wanted it to be about me. Um, but yeah. So that's my take on social media. Sorry if it, <laughs> no, that, it's, it's all good. It's all good. What, you know, you said you never wanted it to be about you. So what did you want it to be about? Like when you started the Therapist Development Center back in 2008, maybe even before then, maybe you had the idea before then, you know, what, what were you doing it for? What was your, what's your intention or your mission? 
Yeah, I was thinking about uh, with this podcast um, coming up and I kept going back farther and farther and farther into my life and saying, well, where did it actually start? If I, you know, where did that come from and where did that idea come from? And I think, and I've certainly done a lot of reflection on my relationship with my dad um, since he passed away, but like, you know, I, I was born very blessed and very privileged and I am very aware of that. And I think I don't expect other people to be, but, um, but I certainly had an awareness of, I was an only child, I mean, middle-class America in Tacoma, Washington, but had two parents that were super attentive and involved in my upbringing, uh, a mom who was really educated, certainly for that era with a master's in nursing, and she was a school nurse and took a lot of pride in her career and really valued, um, I mean, it, my parents had very shared gender roles in our my and my father was a teacher and was a very good teacher in an inner city school. Um, and, you know, it was with the kids that was mostly minority kids. It was at a school where her parents back to school night, you know, maybe two or three of the parents showed up of 30 mm -hmm. per class. So it wasn't a high involved place, but I had these parents and felt very blessed. And because I felt blessed really, I'd say mainly because of my dad, because he was very clear to me when I had good things happen, whether it be I, one thing that comes to mind, I was elected student body president at my high school. And I wasn't particularly like popular in the traditional sense, but I was always just nice to everyone. And that certainly made a difference. But even after I won that, which had a lot to do with who I was as a person, my dad would see, you know, he said to me, he's like, you were born with a four leaf clover in your pocket, pocket, you know, you're really blessed. And so there was just this message all the time that I Yes, I have, I did obviously play a role in my success, but that I was blessed, you know, and I think that when I went to Dartmouth and I was the first person from my high school to go there, um, it, I was very much feeling like I was lucky to be there. Like I was really lucky. I, I felt like it was almost a fluke that I got there. And because of that, I just have always felt, a, a, a like a desire to give back, um, like an obligation, I should say that, um, I should give back. And it was driven by just this sense of things that are justice. And as a young kid, my mom sent me for, for Christmas, my mom gave me um, the best gift ever. She gave me my report card from preschool and it's hilarious. And I went to this Montessori preschool and whoever my teacher was, I mean, it describes me to a T and this was from <laughs> when I was four. And it was Aww. like, Amanda has a very developed sense of justice and um, can hold her own with adults. And um, she always knows the moral of the story. And, you know, for me, um, with, with TDC, the path was, um, is interesting because it really integrated all my interests. Um, first and foremost, which I'll loop back to later, is this kind of sense of justice. But um, my dear, he was a very good teacher. And one of the things he said at a young age, the best way to learn something is to teach it. So starting in high school, uh, I would run study groups. So I would prep for the test as if it was like, I'll give an example, like for chemistry, uh, I would, the test, we had tests on Fridays and I would pretend the test was on Thursdays. And then I would host at my house, a study group that was primarily like all the football players at the, in my high school, which was awesome. I mean, it didn't make me very popular with the girls. At one point, <laughs> one of the girlfriends was like, what are you doing at her house? And he's like, I told her we're studying and she doesn't believe me. He was like, can she come? I'm like, I don't care. So she came and like halfway through, she's like, raised her hand. And I'm like, yeah, she's like, I can go. That's probably why it's like, I don't know what you're doing here, but this is legitimately just chemistry. Um, but my parents would order pizza and I have my one friend, Matt Stevens. We still like laugh about it because it was definitely like one of those things that we, we, like we, that girl was a source of information to other girls of like, what is my boyfriend doing at her house on Thursday? Um, but I loved it. It was fun. And I just tapped into this love of teaching. And then at Dartmouth, I got actually my senior year was an intern with the dean's office. And I ended up creating a studying for the sciences um, program for the for them and their uh, academic resources. And then I was pre-med at Dartmouth because I really didn't know what else to do. Uh, and, and that's kind of your law, med school or um, business kind of approach. And I did the MCAT test a couple of years out of school. I took some time off and 
Um, but I didn't, I, I prolonged the whole med school thing, I think partly because I wasn't exactly sure I wanted to do it. But when everybody else at Dartmouth was doing recruiting on campus and going to law school, med school, I just, it was clear to me, I didn't want to do that. I, to me, I, it never, it, I, I could never understand why somebody would work for someone else and make money off of, you know, make, be made money. I, I was, I was very clear with myself that nobody was going to make money off my brain. So I, I would be a teacher, I'd work in the nonprofit sector, but I was not going to go to work for some company and be expected to work 80 hours or 100 hours and be traveling all the time and doing all, like have not have any, like basically you become a slave, you know, they say, here's your salary, but then they have your time. And I just, I don't, I don't work that well. I have a very, I kind of have an oppositional streak, which anyone who knows me would tell you, um, including my Pilates instructor, because she'll say, so anyway, um, but I got this public service fellowship from Dartmouth. I this um, opportunity and I applied for it and that sent me to Central America for six months. And well, I, I designed my own, I, I designed my own project. So I went to Costa Rica for six months and worked in a women's, the, the women's prison in San Jose and the ward where women can have their children in them if they're nonviolent offenders and the kids are under four. And then also in a home for girls who were victims of incest, who had been removed from their villages to have their babies and be in this home run by um, the Catholic charities down there. So it was a very stark contrast to what I had come from, certainly from the privilege that I was ex surrounded with at Dartmouth, um, and to go down into Central America and live with a host family that the home was made out of car, you know, was made out of um, plywood and aluminum roofing and cockroaches would come out as soon as the, they turned the lights off at night. So it was a very, you know, eye-opening experience. And then to be around these women and some of them girls, um, you know, it just made you, my, that, the idea of having this, how privileged I was just be so in my face. And also I, I for the first time and probably only time I can think of actually, I really had the experience of being an other because I was in part of Costa Rica that was not at all a tourist destination and I was the only white person around and and so that was also a really good experience and obviously I could have I left it I wasn't a permanent state but I think it gave me a sensitivity to what it's like to be um you know a minority in any any place um including this United States so that really shaped me and I feel like that privilege really I felt like I kind of cemented this sense of an obligation of wanting to give back. Um, and, and I remember having this thought of like, I want to be a good person. That's important to me. And then I said, you know what, that's just a static state, you know, and I said to myself, I want to be a better person. And that just makes kind of a, something that I feel like I really do work on. And I think like I've gotten feedback from people in a way that that's something that they feel when they're around me. So from that point, I applied to med school and got in. And then uh, had a really great conversation with a doctor that was working at this health clinic, community health clinic in D.C. And she took me to lunch. She'd gone to Harvard Med School. And she said to me at lunch, is there anything else you could see yourself happy doing? And I was like, oh, yeah. And I just started making this long list of things. And after I was done, she goes, don't go to med school. And I said, <laughs> what? And she's like, do not go to med school. And I go, why not? She goes, med school is only for people that that's the only thing they can imagine themselves doing. And she said, it is a life sentence. And, you know, for some people it's great, but if you think there's anything else you'd like to do, like, don't do it. She said, I, my husband and I met at, at Harvard med school. We um, can't buy a house because we have over $500,000 in student loans. And wow. um, yeah, I mean, and, and honestly, this is how I've always, like my life, I've really been guided tuition and, um, and I kind of describe it as like years kind of spinning and then there'll be these times when they just click into place. And I, I just, right in that moment, I walked out and I called my parents and I said, I'm not going to med school. Like, and, and it, it which is really insane to think about because I was pre-med at Dartmouth and then did the MCAT, went on, you know, a dozen interviews, got into three schools. I mean, that's a long process of, you're talking about like that being my focus for seven years eight years. Oh my gosh. And I was just like, I'm not going. <laughs> so um, I actually had a really bad therapist that I had went to when I moved to California, because it Hello? You turned down med school. How could you turn down med school? Oh, sorry. You and I, 
you cut out right after you said, I actually had a really bad therapist. Can you repeat that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I said I had a really bad therapist when I moved to California. Right, right after that, a couple, it was about a year after I turned down med school. And I told her, because I got a lot of blowback from people for turning down med school. The only, the one person that I immediately didn't get blowback from was my dad. The first thing he said was, I never understood why you wanted to go to med school in the first place. And I was like, wow, you're, yeah, why did I want to go? I don't know. It was just like, (laughs) of the three options, of the multiple choice options at Dartmouth, med school, law school, it was the one that was the most appealing. So, um, but I had this therapist, I went to the session and my biggest thing was the struggle of, I made this choice that everybody else thinks is ridiculous. And I don't know what I'm going to do instead. So I was feeling kind of lost. And I sit down and I start, so I tell her, I go, yeah, I got in med school. And I turned it down. And she goes, why would you do that? And I was like, oh my God, I was sitting there thinking like, do I, do I just get up now? Like, do I have to pay for this session? Like you clearly aren't good at basic emotional attunement. Like this is a bad idea. Um, anyway, so I, uh, research different things. And around that time when I was in Costa Rica, it also really made me realize I wanted to, um, I felt like to make sense of the suffering that I was seeing in the world, I wanted to have some kind of um, framework in my spirituality and support for that. And at the time, I wasn't sure whether or not I believed in God, but I just felt like that was important, especially because all these women were very spiritual. It was really what got them through. I mean, they all prayed. They all had a relationship with God. It was just kind of a given. It's much more common in the Latino culture, you know, to have that. And uh, and so when I was in D.C. after I was um, in Costa Rica, I did a lot of research on different um, religious communities and practices and went to churches and synagogues and did a lot of exploration and came to the decision that I wanted to become Jewish. Uh, mainly because it was a, it's a religion that's a set of laws, um, and it's it's especially in the reform movement. There's a real emphasis on healing the world and social justice, which mm. is what resonated with me. So I, uh, so that was going on for me in that area of my life, and then trying to figure out what I was going to do if I didn't go to med school and looking at different options and researching different programs. I looked at this program at Stanford and youth development because I really liked that kind of model and school psychology and finally came across social work and social welfare and just was blown away that that there was actually a a career where it had social justice in its mission. I mean, in its vision, you know, in its ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, it was right around the time then that I decided to apply to med school and I decided to convert to Judaism, um, because of that interest in social, social justice. And so I was in, you know, at that point I was, I worked at a lot of different jobs. I was usually working two or three jobs, partly for the extra money, but mainly because I just felt a calling to do it. So I, I have worked with pretty much every population um, that you could possibly work with. And it was almost like these things would just, these gigs would come up or whatever. But I, you know, I, I, and I was also out in Washington, DC. I was on this board of this um, group called hips helping individual prostitutes survive. And I went out on a van and did outreach to women that were, um, you know, prostitutes and, and down in, in when I was in L part of the needle exchange, I think I definitely was always drawn to working with populations that other people, traditional services kind of shied away from, or certainly the public did. So I think one of the things I'm really proud of is I was one of the, I, I, I helped, I mean, I didn't run it, but I, part of my job was to be there. I was working at it was the, um, one of the, was the, at the time, the only needle exchange in LA County and, um, and right off of Ven, right near Venice beach and giving out clean needles to people. This was like almost 20 years ago, but it just felt like really important work. So, um, you know, then I got my master's in social work and decided um, to, I mean, I got, was time to take my license. And I was working at an agency where I had access to all the different test prep that was out there in the staff lounge. And so I was looking through things and I just was knowing, oh, that was the other thing I left out. At Dartmouth, I majored in neuroscience. It was a combined major of psychology and biology it wasn't called neuroscience at the time, but I was kind of the kind of, you can make your own major when you kind of do a hybrid of the program and two programs. And so I did a focus on learning because it was just something that I was interested in. And so um, I did my thesis on the state dependent learning in rats. And 
so that was my background. So I had that background. I also had done really well in the MCAT and was, and so I was able to teach and did teach at um, Kaplan test prep and they have teaching for the MCAT down to a science and really knowing how to do the strategies and a lot of these strategies that make a huge difference in your test performance outside of even content. Right. And so that's, I had all that knowledge and I had the experience and I had the love of teaching and I had all the experience in the field of social welfare with all these different populations. So then it was time for me to take this test and I got the materials and I ended up ordering AATBS because that was what was seemed like the most kind of professional at the time and put together. And as soon as I opened the book, I just was like, oh my God, I was like, there's no way that this is what this test could be like. Cause it was just all these facts mm. and um, just so much material. And also it's, we're just not meant to learn with a box of books shipped to us. I mean, if right. that was the case, why would we have schools at all? Right. And I mean, and, and we're looking and seeing now with COVID, even the, the act of remote learning, even if it's live, has serious challenges. Mm-hmm. So there is something that we can't and I am I'm glad we can't because we really as humans are social beings that need it to be in the physical presence of others on a regular basis to um, there's so many things that there's so much stimulation and stuff. It's like a dog. Why a dog needs to go on a walk. Like the stimulation for them of going and smelling everything and being out in nature is it's it's what engages their brain in a meaningful way, um, so they can get yeah they exercise around the yard but it's actually the act of going out and being like oh this this smells different this smells different it's like the same thing with people like we need in the physical presence of of other people so um, I was looking at material and I'm just like wow and at the time too I mean the test that they they were charging for what I ordered I want to say I paid like seven fifty and. Grossman was charging up in that same, they would change They were charging a lot. There was a monopoly. I mean, it was just, there was a couple different companies, but they at all, the prices were really high. Well, I was looking at this stuff and I was thinking to myself, oh my God, I could do this better. And around <laughs> that time, my coworker had given me this book, the four hour work week, which is all about kind of creating passive income. And he's funny. That guy's made a lot of money off of selling the idea of the four hour work week, which is funny because he, he basically did what exactly what he said in the book, but about doing it. So I love when things are like meta like that. So um, anyway, I read like four chapters of it and I was like, oh, I get the idea. And it was right around the time that I was studying for the test. And then I thought to myself, oh my God, I could do this better. And I went across the hall to my friend who was the social worker um, intern director, Sharon. And I said, you want to start a test prep company with me? I'm like, I can totally do this. Like, this is like, like, and she would th- taught, you know, we talked about it for a while and she's like, yeah, I'm interested. Well, it's funny with her because I tried to get her to do it with me three times and she turned me down. I said yes at first and then turned me down. Yes, turned me down. Yes, turned me down. And then I gave up and I'm so glad. And she is too. I mean, I think she regrets because she thinks, you know, obviously there could have been some benefit, but I, it was something that ultimately I just had to do by myself and just be my mm. own boss, even though I, I prefer to do things. Um, and I think I was also just kind of scared and didn't think I could do it by myself. Ultimately, mm-hmm. I built a team of people that helped me and I couldn't have done it without them. And I recently just some of them that are still with me um, when we were reaching board changes and I told three of them, I'm like, I'm listing you. You guys are officially co-founders at this point because we've had to redo the program a couple of times and they have made major contributions to making it um, better. And I want them to be acknowledged for that. So, um, but I'll have to say a driving force in me doing the company was I actually took the test. And as soon as I took the test, I realized not only could I do it better, but the materials that were out there were just way off. Like Mm. they were just not what was on the test. And it became more evident because I did AATBS for the second. And this is back when the clinical vignette existed. And that was a tricky test. I mean, there was no other test like it. You know, it was multiple choice with each answer having multiple components. You didn't have to go through this. But each answer had multiple components in it. And some of the components overlapped. So you really, really had to have a strategy on how to score each answer, first of all. So which which has nothing to do with being a therapist, right? right. I mean, how to take a test does not have to do with therapists. But um, on top of it, you just had to have real clarity about what the question was asking. And the test preps that were out there were at, so I, I did AATBS and I'm a good test taker. Like I said, I did well in the MCAT. I taught this stuff. I knew about the learning and I was doing AATBS stuff. And I was like, this stuff doesn't make sense to me. Like there was answers that they would get, I'd get wrong. And I'd even contact them and they'd say, oh, well, the test is tricky and we're just trying to trick you so that you get oh used to God. being tricked on the test. That was their answer. And I was like, that's not a good answer because they are telling someone to bet against themselves, right? If some, if, if I say to you, 
you're going to have an interview and just be yourself. They just want to hear exactly what they want to get to know you and they want to know how you are in the world. Like you're going to go in there like, yeah, like I can do this. If I say to you, no, Catherine, they're, they're going to ask, every question they ask is going to be a trick question. Oh my gosh. Right. <laughs> like what, what do you immediately do? Like you immediately freeze. You're like, oh my God, it's, they're trying to trick me. And that's what AATBS was telling me. And, and so I went and I bombed it. But what was interesting, and as soon as I sat down to take it, I was like, this is nothing like, nothing like my test that I took. And my brain remembers things and actually tests. I don't have a photographic memory, but I, um, I mean, I could, you know, if I, after that test, I came out and I, I, I wrote, I could write down immediately 90% of the test because mm -hmm. my, that's how my mind studies things and makes it. So anyway, I was very clear. But what was interesting is I was, I, the, the area that I um, bombed was the law and ethics. And I had gotten a hundred on the AATB. I had figured out what AATBS wanted for the law and ethics, but here I had gotten. So can you imagine me failing a test? I mean, I'm somebody who did always rocked tests, rocked them, <laughs> like helped my friends through Dartmouth who are in med school today, like, you know, or med who doctors now, like help them on their tests because I ran study groups like I did in high school there. So I was, I was devastated and I was also shocked, but I was also like something's not adding up. And then when I was thinking, well, I got a hundred on AATBS's law and ethics. And then I said, but so obviously each of me was wrong because I was deficient in that area. And then I looked at the other companies' materials that were out there and none of them was like what I saw. I mean, I had them pretty like the next day or the next couple of days. And so I was like, none of these people are teaching what these tests are like. Mm -hmm. And I ended up doing a deep dive into the BBS website and I can't even remember how I found it, but on some random page way buried as I clicked through things, I found an old study guide that they had that had practice questions that had eight or nine practice questions for um, each test, the clinical and the, or the, um, yeah, the clinical vignette and the other standard, it was called the standard written and the clinical vignette. So there I had eight questions. They didn't have, none of them had rationales. It just had the answer key. And I sat down and I took it. It was two different vignettes and I took it and I got half of them wrong. I got the oh, same wow. score. And so I sat there and I go, well, this is interesting. And so then I said, because all tests have logic to them. I said, well, what, what would my thinking have to be in order to get the right answer? And so I decoded each question, what would, what would I have, how would I have to think to get the answer they wanted? And then as soon as I did that, it clicked and none of the other tests were, I mean, all the other stuff out there was not, wasn't consistent. I mean, it, it is, it's hard to write good questions. Mm -hmm. And um, I worked for Jerry Grossman for a while. And I can tell you like our questions, when we put them on a test, there's a process that we go through. One person writes them. Another person takes the test blind and sees how they do. And then if they get them anything wrong or right, they have a conversation with whoever wrote it. If they got it wrong, then they tweak it to say, what is it exactly? How would I get this right? Was it the person taking it error or what does that we need, do we need to take it? If they got things right, we'd say, well, is there anything we could do to make it a little bit harder? Uh, and after that second person does it and they ch change it, then a third person takes it. Um, Second, second person who takes it, but the third person involved. Um, and then there's a final round where I'll take it. I'll take the questions that they've written and make sure that we can, so then we, we can stand by it. Also, when you're writing a test question, you have a goal in mind of what concept you're testing, but that doesn't necessarily come through with what the final test question is. And you wouldn't know that unless, and that's why the, that's exactly why the test runs practice questions is because they get feedback on what people get right and wrong. So um, we really, I, I took those sample questions and then I was able to, um, once I knew the logic behind them, I was able to make pra more practice questions that followed that logic. And when I went and took the test that time, second time, I just knew right away that I was going to, I was acing it. Like I, every single question I was like, yep, there's the answer. There's the answer. There's the answer. So this tapped my social justice streak. I then became completely outraged, not loudly, but maybe loudly, actually probably loudly up because at the time too, well, this is funny. So I was like, this is wrong. Like these companies are selling $700, $800 test prep programs that don't work, that actually can make you fail. And then when people fail, they take it on. They're the failure. They don't think that maybe they were t sold the wrong stuff. Right. And then these companies too actually charge people to reuse their program, which is just even more troubling because they're mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. one selling it to you in the first place. So that was one of the things I was like, well, when I sell my prep, like people are going to get to use it till they pass. I'm not going to ever charge people to use it again. Otherwise I actually have an incentive to have them 
fail, right? So I um, just put together materials and I actually ended up going first to work for Jerry Grossman because I wanted experience under my belt and get some legitimacy. And he was in the process of creating the social work program in, in his company. And he's mainly doing MFTs and he wanted, was interested in me helping him do that. And I, I said to him, well, you can cut out like a third of what you're just putting in the MFT program because it's not on the test. And he said, well, I don't want to do that because we have to charge less. So it was very clear mm-hmm. with, with all the companies, a lot of the material that they were just were were selling wasn't on the test because the test is a reasoning based test so it really is about staying present with what they're giving which is similar actually to the MCAT so I took when I took the med school exam one of the categories on the test is physics I hadn't actually taken physics yet when I did the MCAT because the MCAT and it was and I was fine and I did really well on that section because it was it's very conceptual physics that that's on there and it really is more the strategies of the test and um, you don't have to have gone through two year I mean a full year of physics to do well because they're not asking the level of details that you would get in a physics course. It's more the concepts. And so that was one of the things with Kaplan that I took away with was you, the actual content that you need, people need to know this baseline content isn't, isn't that much, you, but you, you do need to know it. Sure. But then you just need to know how to apply it and when to use it and when to um, like the, the actual strategies of in, in, in clinical strategies, clinical way of thinking. So, that's what prompted me really when drove me was like, this is wrong. Like this is wrong that these companies are selling those materials and um, I'm going to do something about it. And that's what I did. And so I started off um, with small groups and I created three, two hour workshops. So it was just six hours. And so it was primarily strategies for both tests. And I had my, my top 50 topics that I taught for the standard written and taught their um, taught the strategies. And then I had, um, a few vignettes for this, um, for the second, um, the, the clinical vignette and six hour. And it was, um, so I didn't have any practice tests. It was just strategies and um, a, the, the core overview of content uh, um, at the pretty stripped down level. If you think it's only six hours. But what happened was, is I would get people in those courses that had failed multiple times. I mean, I was not a big name. So these people were not going to come for me, come to me first. So mm-hmm. most of the people that used me in the beginning were people who had failed multiple times using all the other test prep companies and they were completely desperate. Mm-hmm. But the beauty in those people is that when they come to me and then I make, and then they pass, I mean, that's why it fast was because these people were like walking testimonials of my company because they were like, whoa, it wasn't me. You know, I was, I was taught the wrong way. And right. I, re- I remember... So then I was also very committed to that. I hadn't taken the MFT program and I didn't feel like you should be teaching that test if you weren't exposed to it yourself. So, but I had this colleague that had failed the MFT clinical. Well, the standard written, it was the standard written. I felt fine about because there was just so much overlap, but the clinical vignette I knew was a little bit different, but I wasn't sure how um, it was much heavier on theories for the MFT. But I had this good friend who was at my agency and she had taken it like three times and failed the clinical vignette for her MFT three times. Very bright woman, very great, really great clinician. Um, and she was, her job was on the line, which can happen to people. And I said to her and she's like, could I do your course? I'm not going to charge you for it because I don't feel right. And I want, you know, I want your feedback. That's you know what I want you to give me. And after the very first class, she said, I know exactly why I failed now. Like I wasn't, you know, and, and so she um, took her test and did my strategies and she passed. And I said to her, do you think it's okay if I teach the MATs? And she says, you have to, Amanda. So I remember at this point, built up enough of a reputation from the social work community that I was already getting some referrals. And I had the very first workshop for MFTs. I had 15 people in it and they had all failed multiple times. You know, and a lot of these people were older, you know, in their careers. Like this is like a devastating, um, a devastating event in their life, a very significant one. I mean, most people who are in this field, they've done well academically. They've been put it together. You know, they've done, um, had success and just feeling, questioning their overall abilities. It's really, really hard to say for all this. That's you. I think it's a great opportunity to have that experience because clients, we see clients all the time that are dealing with failures and setbacks and you know these things that that's part of life when you're actually pushing yourself to grow is you're gonna if you are pushing yourself to grow and achieve you're gonna have setbacks and that's part of the, the, the resilience and 
ability to, to get around that um, and keep her perspective is important. So anyway, go, going back to the story, I had these 15 people in there and they'd all fail. Here I was teaching them the curriculum and they, and right away they were all just saying they could see, they felt like they all felt confident with right away what I was giving them was going to help. And they all passed. Wow. Passed. Yep. Amazing. Yeah. And so then they went out and I mean, it was like, then it just, it really started to, um, to grow quickly. And I, um, I had always, I think at some point we started having people call in on the phone and then I record was starting to record the lectures and make those available for people to listen to for a short, you know, afterwards, if they hadn't, if they'd taken the course, but they wanted to re-listen sat down and um, I was hiking actually and I, I just felt like I channeled the whole vision of the website as it as it looks today I mean we're going to be doing a revamp of it but the, the actual what the what the exactly how the, the website looks I completely channeled in my on a hike um, in Topanga Canyon in LA and just saw all the steps and everything like it was a moment of just complete integration between everything in my life that I'd done before and this People. And going back to my outrage, what's really funny is when I first did the lectures, I would always comment, I'd say, well, if you did eight, because I most that came to my test prep had already failed using other companies. And I always wanted to cheer them up and make them feel like it was them. So I'm like, well, if you did this company, they would have taught this and you have to ignore that because we would also get people that would call us and be like, well, they say to do this. I'm like, no, just if, if you're going to do our prep, prep, just do our prep. Like, <laughs> we're not going to get in an argument about what Jerry Grossman says or AATBS says like this is how we say to do it and all my tests my all my um, coaches have gotten 90% or higher like that's how Kaplan does it percentage it could be in the 90th, 90th percentile to teach I was like we know the test you can argue what you want but this is how we're telling you to do it and um, anyway but what's funny is I would say these things like one this probably will do this and this isn't right and but got to this point where people were just coming to us without doing those companies first right those they had just come directly to us so we started getting feedback they were like amanda sounds really angry at this such and such company or amanda keeps talking about this other company and they had no idea they had no point of reference why that was relevant the people right. that had appreciated it but when we re-recorded or when we had to because of the test changed that i was like yeah i don't need to like bring my outrage anymore into this um into this stuff so yeah so that got us to where we um were with you know where how the kind of birth of the company i'm oh, sorry my ear bugs coming out hold on oh are you there yes hold on, hold on. okay i'm taking you out of my ear my ear everything so um but yeah i feel like i i have to acknowledge um, Bethany Vanderbilt, because she was my first hire, she was amazing. And we were both new moms and when I came up with the plan to do it. So she used my stuff to pass and gave me feedback on it. And, and then when she actually moved from like to South Carolina or something and was, didn't have a job and was a new mom and we all who, anyone who's done that knows how hard that is. And the actual reality check of what it's like to be a mom and trying to work and trying to do a job. It's, it's pretty absurd um, yes. how hard it is to try to balance that life. And so she was able to work, I want to say like 15 hours a week. And I had at point two kids and was young, I mean, a baby and a, and a toddler and, um, had childcare three days a week. And so between us, we had the equivalent of a one full-time person. And I just mapped out the whole thing we had to build up. And I was like, okay, it's going to take us a year. That's how long it's going to take us. And we just did it. And we built out the initial program. And then when we expanded, I added Asia and Robin, uh, who are my coaches. Um, they're the MFT coaches. And so they came and they were studying when it was back when it was just the six hour thing and both they were actually happened to be friends and they um and another both reached out to me saying i love your company and if you grow i'd love to be part of it and then it was funny i was like well god which one am i going to pick because they both seem so great and then i was like you know what they both they live they used to work at the same agency together and they live near each other and i thought you know what it's nice if i hire both of them part-time and then they have each other and we have that, you know, because I knew also writing questions, how important it is to have a, more than one set of eyes or as many as you can. So 
they came on and were really instrumental in um, building out the MFT program. And then the last person or two other people, Emily Pellegrino was, she had, um, it's my brother-in-law's little sister and she's so awesome. Like she, she was, um, she had just happened to graduate from social work school in, out in Chicago. And she is like the, she's like a workhorse, but like a, 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 a racehorse workhorse, like this girl can get stuffed trans like she's so fast <laughs> at everything and I used to like laugh with Bethany because I'm like nobody tell Emily she's getting paid by the hour okay because <laughs> she does things at like three times the rate as anyone else and I'm like dude if you slow down you'd make twice as much money at least and it was really cute because I know obviously know her parents because they're kind of part of my extended family and I remember talking to the dad about it and I'm like I don't know what you did with that one but she is a she's a workhorse and he goes oh she used to always be like that he's like she would garden with me for hours and so it's just funny to think like my preschool report card how some of this stuff but she has been um, one of those kind of quiet contributors that has like knows the ins and outs of um, I feel like if something happened to me, my will needs to be make sure you talk to Emily because Emily knows exactly how everything at the company works on the back end of the computer because she she just it's like if I need to find a file, <laughs> even if it's not related to Emily, I, I, even if it's not related to my company, my first in instinct is to ask Emily. It's like, if I can't find something at home, I should ask Emily because Emily already always knows where it is. So Emily Pellegrino has been just absolutely phenomenal and um, just so good and patient with customers. And then the other person is um, that's been such a gift is this woman, Heidi Toby, who uh, was actually, we, at some point we were giving out a couple years in a row, we gave out some scholarships to social work students um that was a really neat program that we are hoping to bring back but she and then she was so funny because she was studying for her test and called contacted me and had taken a live workshop that was at her school from this doctor dr d or some woman that goes around and does these workshops and this woman has never taken the test by the way and she um, was licensed before it ever came out so i just it rubs me the wrong way when people i use the analogy of if this was a test that you had to ride a motorcycle over a mountain, would you ever consider hiring someone that's never ridden a motorcycle to teach you how to do it? It's like, no way. It's like, well, I've studied motorcycles. I'm like, no, have you actually gotten on a motorcycle yourself and rode over the mountain? Well, no, but I can like, I have a PhD in the history of motorcycles. It's like, <laughs> no, I like to talk to someone that's actually ridden a motorcycle. Well, anyway, right. Heidi's so funny because she calls me up and I, she, and I go, well, I go, she goes, do you just have tests? I just want the tests. I don't want to like do a whole program. And I'm like, well, no, our program is a system and you can't break it apart because it really is like, I mean, I know what I'm doing. It's it's all based on the neuroscience. And she's just like, nah, I'm not interested. She was just so, it's really funny to think that she works for me now and she's such a great contributor, but it's, we laugh about it. And so then I said, look, cause she, and I go, she's, I already did this workshop. I'm going to take the test in like a week. I don't need another, I don't need a whole program. Um, and she's very bright and she was right. She probably didn't. But I said to her, look, I'm really curious because she was taking the master's level program that we were just getting launched. And I said, would you, I want you to take the test, take our program for free and just give us feedback. And, and also I said, I'm really curious about how it compares to this other person's materials. Cause this one lady was a big, I'd say a bigger, a bigger, one of our competitors for the national program. And so that's what she did. And she just gave such great feedback. And it was, you know, clearly so she said it was so much better than the other women's and she did really well on the test. And she was definitely could say that she felt like our, she would have passed anyway, but our prep um, just pushed her over the edge as far as, you know, getting a really high score. So I just liked her because she was so authentic and clearly really bright and um, so then we were, I said to her, you know, we're going to be doing, expanding to the LMSW and is that, would you be interested in, in, you know, coming and doing that? And she, she, again, she was like, yeah, maybe, you know, she just was, I liked it. Cause she's just wasn't, yeah, I don't know. It's she's, she just has the confidence and stuff and an honesty that I appreciate. So then when it came around time, I reached out to her, I don't know, it was like four months or five months away from that point and reached out to her and she was interested and came on initially part-time and that program grew and um at some point I just said to her well you know she I don't think she was uh, she was kind of getting burned out where she was working and um I knew that and I said well 
what, how much do you know, like what, where, what are you making there and how much would we need to bring you on um, with the intention of growing the program? And um, so we made that work and she came on early on. I mean, that's, I don't know how many years that have been. And then she's been very instrumental in, in, in the um, social work program. So, you know, all of these people, this, I mean, they, they are the engine really of the company. Um, and I'm well aware of that at this point. I mean, I was been, been busy raising my children and blessed to have the time to do that. So it's only really recently in the last few months where we are kind of at this point turning the corner and deciding I, I'm going to get more involved. My kids are old enough now that I can um, feel more comfortable being away. I just, before there was, I, it was too important to me to be around my kids. I couldn't feel like I could justify, um, certainly because it felt like it was more about the money, but this new thing where we are now is we're going to be launching a, um, a CEU library and, um, and bringing that kind of, um, I mean, I've done a lot of training. So I've, I've done a lot of training. I've done a lot of reading. I've done a lot of studying since, even since I've been, um, up in Santa Barbara and kind of out of the mix. And I, I really feel committed to bringing a similar quality of CEU, uh, to the therapist community as I did with the stuff with the therapist development center test prep. Yes. I love that, Amanda. And we're going to end this episode for this week and we're going to do a second episode. I'm enjoying this conversation so much that next week, I really want to hear about one, what you have coming next, of course, for the CEUs, but I also want to hear about if you've ever experienced any kind of imposter syndrome or how you got, you know, built up confidence or maybe some confidence um, tips that you can share with us. And that is going to be coming in the next episode. Awesome. That sounds great. Yes. Yeah. I, have had, I have had imposter uh, syndrome for sure. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Social Workers Rise. If this episode helped you, please help me spread the word by leaving a review wherever you listen to your podcast and share that you're listening. Tag me on social media. I love it. I will repost and reshare. I love it. Social currency is free, but it is so valuable. Also, I'd love to hear from you on Instagram. I really do respond. I really do love it when you give me your feedback. Lastly, This is not therapeutic advice or business advice or any other kind of personalized advice. To get that, you definitely need me as your coach. So please, again, reach out to me on Instagram. I can't wait till next week. I will see you then. All the love. Bye.